You're listening to a podcast from York City Church. If you like what you hear and you'd like to find out more, please visit our website at www.yorkcitychurch.org.uk. My name's Alan and I'm one of the leaders here and it's now 14 years since Susanna and I moved to York. And uh, we love it. We love the church. We love the city. Uh, if you're looking in on City Church, hello, everyone up there as well. Um, just would commend this great community to you for love and warmth and encouragement and companionship and vitality and your walk with Jesus and your pilgrimage with him. Uh, it's brilliant. And so, uh, as has been mentioned already, we've got this 100 days of prayer. Uh, it's an opportunity for us as a church to engage in seeking God together. Uh, there's no sort of big agenda like by the end of 100 days, this will have happened. Uh, it's very much we will seek God and we will trust him and we'll see what he does over those 100 days. So, it's going to be wonderful. And uh, to kick us off, we're going to be looking at the Lord's Prayer. Uh, I'm starting today, and for the next few weeks, we're going to be working through the Lord's Prayer bit by bit on this exciting and slightly demanding journey that we're embarking on together. Uh, And the Lord's Prayer will shape also uh, our prayer gatherings and some of the things that we do midweek throughout this season. We'll allow the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, taught the church to pray, to be something that shapes the way that we pray together as a church. So, to get us going this morning, we're going to be using the first few words of the Lord's Prayer, the first petition, if you like, the first bit of it. But I want to backtrack slightly before we get to that, because it's easy to forget that there are there's some introductory words that Jesus gives to the Lord's Prayer, at least in Matthew's Gospel, which is where I'm basing today's sermon from. And I want us to consider what Jesus says as he as he leads up into teaching about prayer. Because I want us to avoid the assumption that the Lord's Prayer is like this freestanding piece of spirituality. It just kind of exists free form for people to pick and choose as they like. There's quite a lot of important stuff that Jesus has to say before he even begins to talk about Uh, before he begins to teach the disciples exactly how to pray. So I'm going to read from Matthew 6, verses 7 to 8, and the words will come up on the screen. Uh, This I'm using, by the way, uh, for this series, I'm using Tom Wright's translation of uh, of Matthew's Gospel, um, because I think it's really good, actually. Um, It doesn't replace uh, a a sort of established translation like an NIV or an NRSV, but I think it captures, in a way that perhaps the message does sometimes, the essence and the heart of uh, of what is going on. So uh, if you've got one of those, you can follow along, but the words will come up. So Jesus says, when you pray, don't pile up a jumbled heap of words That's what the Gentiles do. They reckon that the more they say, the more likely they are to be heard. So don't be like them. You see, your father knows what you need before you ask him. What's the first thing that you notice here? The first thing that springs to mind. For me, it's the startling reality that Jesus assumes that prayer is something that is just going on. He doesn't say, if you pray, or when you get round to praying, just when you pray. 
It's like prayer is happening. You do it. When, when you pray, that's quite startling, isn't it? Perhaps it's not the first thing we think about when we think of prayer. When you, when, when you pray, assuming that you do. I mean, at the time when Jesus said these things, there was already a well-established Jewish tradition of praying three times a day. Uh, a very powerful and almost kind of life-shaping content to Jewish prayer. And it's a tradition that carries on, actually, in Judaism, in the synagogue, even to this day. But the Jews weren't the only ones who prayed. The non-Jewish world was full of gods, so-called gods. And prayer could be, I guess, somewhat anxious and neurotic in nature. With so many gods out there, you better make sure that you cover your bases by praying loud and praying long. And hope above hope that you haven't missed out one of the pantheon while you were praying. Because if you miss that one and it's his off day, then you're going to be in trouble. Can you see how prayer could become quite anxious and nervy? How can you be sure you've got to pray a lot? In this context, prayer could boil down to basically just knowing the right formulae to use in order to work the levers well enough to secure the favor of the gods in any one moment. Hence, Jesus says, they reckon that the more they say, the more likely they are to be heard. It's a way of praying that is fraught with uncertainty and anxiety. Can I be sure that I have touched all the appropriate bases? Have I found the magic words? Have I placated the right gods? And Jesus says, don't be like them. Don't be like them. I think it's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus prefaces his own model of prayer with a negative statement like that. Don't be like them. I mean, perhaps, after all, we could surmise that in each of us there is a kind of neurotic prayer who needs to be told to calm down from time to time. Perhaps that's true of us, whether our prayer life is, oh God, help, or something a little bit more refined than that. Does it mean that long prayers are outlawed for Christians then? The Gentiles, in their anxious outpouring and jumbling up of words, think that they're heard because of their many words. Does it mean that for Christians then, prayer should just be short, clipped, non-passionate, matter of fact? I think it's interesting how your own particular, I don't know, perhaps your, your particular makeup, your preference can come into the interpretation of this text. I mean, it would seem to be a very nice text to use if you are the perfect, refined, late modern lady or gentleman for whom no big shows of emotion, nothing too extravagant, nothing that's particularly over the top. Keep it clean, keep it simple, keep it nice and neat. A quick prayer at dinner time and a quick prayer at bedtime and that will do, thank you very much. Because Jesus said, don't be like them. I don't think really it does outlaw long prayers at all, does it? 
Maybe it's less about the number of words and more about the motivation. And of course, that's far harder to discern. The motivation behind praying minute prayers could be equally as heinous as the motivation behind praying long, extravagant, egotistical prayers. So the length of words doesn't really seem to be the main thing. Perhaps even as Christians, we have our own habits in prayer that we subconsciously think will get us heard by God. I mean, after all, it's not uncommon, is it, to hear Christian prayers that say the word Lord and the word just more than they say anything else. So that if you could measure the content of the prayer, there was maybe half a sentence of actual request in a 10-minute prayer. (laughs) Guilty as charged. But there's a more positive reason that Jesus says, don't be like them. There's a more positive reason that he wants his followers to pray in a certain way and not like the Gentiles. And that reason is, you are known. You are known. Some would say that the, the big longing of modern human existence is just the aching desire to be known. Does anybody really know me? Does anybody care? Is there anyone out there? There's a million and two friends on Facebook and 30 billion TikTok followers. I had nine zillion likes this week, but does anybody know me? And Jesus says, you are known. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Yes, I know it says he knows what you need, but to know what you need must mean that he knows who you are. The key reason for not being like the Gentiles and jumbling up a pile of words and thinking that you're heard because of your many words is ultimately not about volume of words, but the reality that you are known by someone. You don't need to be a neurotic prayer, filling the air with verbiage just because you want to make sure that someone hears you because there is a Father in heaven who knows you. And that strips away the need for your anxiety and your ego to go berserk. You're known. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Now there's something here that is easy to miss. Jesus assumes something. And we can miss it quite easily. He refers to God as your father. And your is plural there, actually. You can say your singular, and you can say your plural in Greek or in Aramaic, indeed. And this is plural, your father. And it might be that Jesus has in mind, actually, uh, one or two, a number of Old Testament, what we would call Old Testament texts, what for Jesus was just scripture, a number of texts that speak about the relationship between God, Yahweh, the the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and his people, his one, for example. 
This is God speaking to Moses and telling him to go to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and say, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may worship me. And so in the Old Testament scriptures, the father-son relationship is between God and his people, at least in the book of Exodus. And you could turn to Hosea as well in places in Deuteronomy and find the same thing. And Jesus seems to assume the same when he speaks to his disciples and says that God is their father. Your father knows what you need. I'll come back to something similar to that in a little while, because it's very important. Before we go there, though, I think there could be some awkward questions this morning. Maybe there are awkward questions forming in your mind at this point along the lines of, well, if God is a father who knows what I need before I ask, why the heck doesn't he just give me what I need without having to bother asking him? Then why expend the energy? Why, why kneel down in prayer? Why, why utter breath? I mean, surely if God is this glorious, massive, powerful entity who's also a father, why doesn't he just cough it up? Why doesn't he just give us the stuff that we need? In fact, why risk not getting what we need? Perhaps nestled in beneath the surface of that question is, why risk not getting what I want? Because it's not the same question necessarily, is it, as what I need? They're actually good questions to ask. The question, well, why should I pray at all? I mean, there is an assumption here, isn't there? Here I am, I've kicked off a sermon in 2022 talking about prayer. As everyone goes, oh, yes, of course, well, we all know what that is. But what if there's a problem? What if we've actually tried it, found it deeply discouraging and disheartening? We asked for some stuff and we didn't get what we wanted. It's somehow related, actually, with another question that you might have. Well, if God is so powerful and big and strong and mighty, why doesn't he put a stop to things like a blimmin' pandemic? But why doesn't he just put a stop to suffering? If God, is, if God is massive and a father, well, why, doesn't he, why doesn't he stop it all? That's a really difficult question. And you need to know that you're not the first person that's asked that question, either out loud or in your heart. It's a question that people have been asking God for as long as there have been people sucking in air. It's very difficult to actually answer it well, but part of the answer might be, just might be, that if there is a God like that, who is so big and so good and so powerful, that you, that you could be angry at him, that he hasn't stopped all the injustices and all the pains in the world, that he hasn't answered your specific prayer, if he's that big and that powerful that you can be cross at him for not doing those things, isn't it feasible that he is also big enough and powerful enough and therefore wise enough to have a reason that is beyond your three-pound grey matter for allowing it to continue? You can't have that one and not that one. If God is big enough to be cross at that he doesn't stop it, then there must be some reason in that glorious, indescribable God that we've sung about this morning, for him not doing what you want. 
not showing himself in the way that you think he should. Lest we get carried away with big philosophical issues this morning, let's get it down to something a little bit more personal. Perhaps you like the idea of God as something like a divine utility supplier who enters into some kind of contractual obligation to provide a quibble-free good life service for the annual fee of an occasional attendance at church and perhaps the odd post decrying the evil, some social injustice or something. (laughs) I do those things, I virtue signal and God gives me the good life. Wow, what a wonderful arrangement it is. Maybe you like the idea of a God like that. But can you really know a God like that? I don't know my utility service provider. In fact, it would be slightly bizarre if I had a phone call from Eon or somebody and started chatting away to the lady on the other end of the phone about how my day's going. Who does that? Or even weirder, if the woman phoned up and said, hey, I was just thinking about you today, and I wondered if you wanted to go out for a drink this evening. (laughs) Whoa, bunny boiler alert. But if there's a God who is powerful and big, who is called Father by Jesus, who knows you and who knows what you need before you can even ask him, and who even knows the things that you need that you haven't thought about asking him for, and he gives you anyway because he's good, like, for example, being. Like, who wakes up and goes, Please get, oh, before I've even asked for being, oh, lo and behold, here I am. (laughs) You are. Did you ask to be? No. Ever? No. You just are. I said, before you've even said anything, you are. God sustains you moment by moment in his love, and you don't think to ask for it. You just receive it. If God is so good as to do that, and also to say that he knows what you need and will give you what you need, do you not think it'd be worthwhile seeking to know him? Actually seeking to get to know a God like that. Not settling for a contractual obligation of some good, upstanding, very Western-based morality equals a quibble-free service giving me the good life. What about if it was, I get to know God As father, I get to enter into relationship with the all-powerful one who is seeking to know me beyond just having a knowledge about me but wants to draw me into relationship. I want to suggest that it's possibly better to do that. And therefore, prayer has to move beyond simply, I asked for that, I might get it, I might not, or being cross about things. It's a means of communing with God, of entering into relationship with a Father who knows and loves you. Now, there are so many levels to explore in prayer. You know, prayer can be as simple as just help God, help Or it can be as theologically rich as participating by the Holy Spirit and the Father's union and love with the Son that's been going on for all eternity. It's both of those things. And probably help, God help, shares in that. And that informs that, and so on and so forth. And prayer is this deep and personal thing very often, but 
Jesus doesn't let us get away with just, well, prayer is personal and my preference, because he says, this is how you, plural, again, should pray. It's not advice. It's this is what you should do. This is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, may your name be honored. Can I encourage you during this season of prayer to explore what it looks like for you to bring your preferred style of prayer into obedience to this? Not to judge this on the basis of your preferred style. That's a bad place to be in. I like to pray like this, so what Jesus says is irrelevant to me. Excuse me? For real? Now let's bring our preferred style, our preferences, and try and wrestle them into obedience with how the Son of God says we should pray. He doesn't say, this is how you should pray, just whatever strikes you, you know, just, just breathing, you know, your, your, your life is a prayer. Life is a prayer, walking down the road, you know, or, or people who say sometimes, when they say, oh God, oh, it's just prayer. Oh, is it? <laughs> okay. I hear a lot of prayer on EastEnders then. Actually, no, I don't, I never watch EastEnders. I know. This is how you should pray. Maybe it's irrelevant to say it to you. Maybe, maybe we're all in the same place. Of course, of course, we should pray the way that Jesus teaches us to pray. I think obedience to the Lord should trump our own personal sense of authenticity, shouldn't it? You can be authentically a heretic, authentically wrong, authentically deceived. Let's be authentically obedient in this season and learn what that looks like. So we should pray our Father in heaven, may your name be honoured, hallowed be your name, as it is in traditional translations of this text. Jesus teaches us to begin prayer in the rarefied atmosphere of the identity and glory of God. Jesus doesn't say when you begin with prayer, begin by freaking out and then slowly but surely make your way through to a place of being a little bit more mellow. <laughs> now it starts with God. When you pray, say, Father in heaven, may your name be honoured. Jesus teaches us that prayer begins in worship and a desire for God's honor that ranks above our personal needs, even though those personal needs are known and taken into account, as we've already heard. When prayer gets uprooted from the soil of a deep concern for the glory of God, it will soon wither away and become nothing more than wishful thinking and the vain prattling of the religious ego. Our Father in heaven, may your name be honoured. Think about the constituent parts of this, if you like. Our Father in heaven. Prayer puts us in our place. It humbles us. It reminds us we are not God, and we are here. 
And it acknowledges that God is in his place, our Father in heaven. As the great theologian Karl Barth said, God is not man said in a loud voice. God is other. God is exalted. Paul led us magnificently this morning, worshipping a God who is high and lifted up and exalted. And that's right, because that's what God is like. May your name be honoured. Prayer dethrones our ego by drawing attention away from ourselves and focusing instead on the honour and the glory of God. So when you pray, say, Our Father, may your name be honoured. When you pray this hundred days of prayer, begin with statements of worship and praise. If you need help, listen to Lou Fellingham. Other worship leaders are available. Uh, Or pick a psalm or something. Get something that helps you to express worship to God. I, I sometimes feel that nothing could be more important and urgent for us than to build a vocabulary of worship to build a vocabulary of praise. It's one of the reasons why there are 150 psalms that are addressed upward. It's not God speaking to people in the psalms, it's people's worship and response and answer to God. We need a vocabulary and we need to learn, we need to get in on the grammar of God a little bit, otherwise prayer becomes dead stale. And it's very difficult to say your name be honoured and then to do that if it's just Lord, God, Father, Lord, Father, just Father, Lord, I just, just, Amen. Build a vocabulary, read some good books, listen to some podcasts, listen to some sermons, fill your vocabulary with God so that when you pray, you've got stuff to say that worships and overflows with the glory of God. I want to focus for the last couple of minutes on a small but potentially revolutionary detail though. And it's something that is gonna crop up again and again and again, and just please take note, those of you who are preaching on the Lord's Prayer for the rest of this series, just take note, it shows up again and again and again. It's very, very simple, but it's often overlooked. Our Father in heaven, may your name be honored, Jesus says, our your plural singular if you read through the rest of the lord's prayer you'll see the same pattern your name your kingdom your will be done our father give us forgive us rescue us As we embark on an adventure in these hundred days, I want you to know very much that it's not, this Lord's Prayer is not a template for personal piety. It's more a manifesto for a praying people. It's not all about personal piety. Remember I said to you that Jesus refers to your father and that he may well have in mind things like Exodus 4.22. 
Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may worship me. The the father-son relationship in scripture is between first God and his people. Well, again, in the Lord's Prayer, the relationship is between God and his people. It's why it's all plural. You, your, us, us, our. The point of the Lord's Prayer is to shape the church's prayer life together, not to give you something to privately take away, although I can guarantee if you do do it, that it will enrich your personal devotion enormously. I have no doubt about that. But the point is for us, and particularly in this moment, that God is calling us together. And he's not asking us to be 80, 90, 100 adults or so who have a better quiet time and a slightly more satisfying spiritual experience personally. He's calling us to be a people of prayer. Because a people of prayer embody, in the end, the concerns of God for kingdom, and for the honor of God and for his name. They become a forgiving people. They become a people who give thanks. They give a people who witness to the world the wonders of God and what it means to have God as Father. And so it can't all terminate on individuals and their personal experience of God. It's calling all of us together to be the people of God who have one Father now in the Lord Jesus Christ and who share one Spirit now in the Lord Jesus Christ and who are being formed as one people by God to proclaim his excellencies to the world, to call on him together It's the wonder of the church. It's so important. Us, our, your, our. God, us. The Father, his children, his family, his people. Let's go for it together this season. Like I said, I don't know what's going to happen. It may be that we get to the end of 100 days and just our Sunday mornings are just a little bit more vibrant and in praise and with glory and a sense of God's nearness and a sense of the reality of God. That would be a win. That would be a good outcome. I'll I'll take that. (laughs) I hope you would too. It might be that alongside that, a couple of extra people join the church because something's happened and they've realized, wow, he's changed. What's going on with you? Well, I've been praying with the church and this stuff, really? Oh, can I come? And that might have, that'd be amazing too. It might be that your personal life changes. That'd be brilliant too. That'd be good. It might be that, I don't know, all, who knows? All kinds of stuff could happen. The point is, let's give ourselves to it. And let's trust him that as we begin to engage with this prayer and as we begin to be alert to the realities of a corporate identity again of the people of God, he will do some things in us corporately that we can't even begin to imagine or touch on or quantify at the moment. And that's exciting. He'll meet our needs. Here's one need that he'll meet for you. Energy. Who needs energy? Hey? Oh, I can't possibly go to a prayer meeting. I don't have the energy. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Come.
trust him. If I go to the prayer meeting, will I have energy on Monday morning or Wednesday morning or Thursday morning? Trust him. Come. Come and see. Come and find out that actually when we faithfully give ourselves to the things of God, he will meet us where we're at and our feelings of weariness might actually dissipate. You know, the joy of the Lord will be your strength. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. Is it a vain promise? Come on, Erica. Is it a vain promise? No, thank yes. Oh, my word. So I'm going to remember, I'm going to write, write it down, Suze. Red letter day. On this morning, we became a little bit more Pentecostal. <laughs> it's not a vain promise. Listen, I find it hard. Sunday morning after I've preached, and there's a prayer meeting Sunday evening, this, the conversation in our house often goes like this. Who's going? Oh. Honestly, I leave the church and I wrestle with the fact that I'm a bit knackered on Sunday afternoon after I've preached, even often when I've not. But here's the thing. Either God's word is true, those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will rise up on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. Even the youths (coughs) will grow weary. I just about count myself in that. Do we believe him? Or do we cave into the flesh? Do we take him at his word? Or do we go, nah. Let me urge you please see that I'm not asking you to do something that I I don't have to fight with myself I don't think there could be anything more important in this season than for each and every one of us to take responsibility for each and every one of us by beginning to show up by beginning to come out by saying what's the first thing that goes in the diary this week prayer Because Jesus just assumes that we will. And he's given us a way of praying. So let's honour him. Let's seek with all our heart, soul, mind, strength to trust him, to overcome, to get over us. Oh, I got asked once in a seminar, "What's what's the biggest challenge that you face as a leader? I said, easy, me. It just is. But it's true for every single one. Your biggest challenge is you not anything else it's you you're your biggest challenge you are there's no lack in God ever 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 it's you overcome yourself with God's help it's always us isn't it so let's be a people who respond with faith and with vigor and with energy to a call to pray together. Let's see what he does among us as we do that. I've gone well off piste. Let's stop with the notes. <laughs> Have a good afternoon. There's not a prayer meeting tonight, is there? Having said all that, okay? So you can, s- so you can go home and rest. Ah, oh, and then rest this week so that you can come Tuesday, Wednesday, ready to be equipped. Mark's going to be leading us on Tuesday and Wednesday evening in some brilliant equipping stuff. If you feel I don't really know what to do, come. Gosh, just show up. Woody Allen said 70% of life is showing up. You might be right. Perhaps when it comes to prayer, it's 100%. So come along, get involved.
Let's enjoy what God will do. Amen. That's the end. We're going to break bread together. There's, um, there's bread and wine on the tables. Uh, eat and drink. Ask God to meet with you in that moment. Let's trust him that as we do that, that he will strengthen us. And let's look forward to this hundred days with a sense of faith and anticipation of all the goodness that is to come. Amen.